Welcome to the Long Thread Podcast about spinning, stitching, and weaving by hand. This series is sponsored by Long Thread Media, publishers of Spinoff, Piecework, and Handwoven magazines. Find us online and subscribe at longthreadmedia.com. I'm your host, co-founder Anne Marrow. I'm here with John Malarkey, who is a world-renowned tablet weaver and one of the new owners of Red Alder Fiber Arts Retreat and has been a contributor to Spinoff and Handwoven for many years. Thanks, John. Hi, Anne. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. You are in your in your home office slash studio, as I suppose many of us are now. Yes, indeed. I first got to know you as a spinner who was interested in bands, and you were working on a variety of different bands, and then you came to sort of specialize in tablet weaving. First of all, could you, could you explain what tablet weaving is? It's an ancient primitive weaving technique that um, is unique in that a twist is imparted into the cloth as well as warp and weft. And it allows for really intricate patterns, um, typically used to make bands and straps. Uh, cards or tablets are used to support the threads and act as your um, shafts or harnesses. So it's portable. And yeah, I can't do it enough. And the, the classic form is maybe a three-inch square card with four holes in it. Uh, and then there's sort of a stack of them. and Correct. And a thread goes through each hole of each card um, and then gets tensioned as any warp would. And turning the cards uh, makes the threads exchange position. But it also adds this twist that is unique to um, tableau of and cloth. And so what is it uh, that, that made you so interested in tablet weaving? Like, what is it that I think a lot of people try tablet weaving, um, but you really got the bug. Yeah, I, I, I don't play chess, but I liken it to chess. Um, the moves are not complicated. Um, you, you turn the cards, you throw the weft, you beat it down, repeat. But because unlike on a floor loom, I can turn individual cards different directions there's a layer of complexity there that that has kept me entertained for years. Uh, the other thing is that because of the twist and because I'm also a spinner, that part of, of the cloth is really interesting to me too. Most of the pattern evolves by the direction of the twist and the color interaction. So it's funny because on one hand, when you talk about each thread individually, that sounds like a CompuDobby. And on the other hand, when you talk about, you pretty much always have half the holes up and half the holes down, which sounds a lot like a rigid heddle. Right. So it's, it's just this kind of interesting combination. It is. And, um, you know, it's got two more harnesses than a rigid heddle, which gives it additional complexity, plus the fact that the cards can move individually, again, gives it another layer of complexity. And a few years back, you won an award at the Complex Weavers part of the Convergence with something card woven. And so it's it's always strikes me as kind of funny that you, in a field of things that involve 80, 60 harnesses, you, you took a pack of cards <laughs> and, <laughs> and got an award for your weaving. 
Yes. And I mean, it was exceptional uh, tablet woven cloth because um, I actually wove it on a floor loom, spread out the cards and made something that was not a band that, that felt like cloth. And um, that was entered into the yardage exhibit in uh, Reno at the Convergence in Reno. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not alone among your students for having maybe tried card weaving or tablet weaving before and thinking, oh, that's neat, but really getting sucked in by your enthusiasm for it. Oh, thank you, Anne. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you know, I've been to events where the first class to sell out is tablet weaving, which I guess, you know, for, for people who don't have a lot of equipment or it, it's something where because it's different from all of the other skills of weaving, you can have people who are extremely advanced and much more more entry level who both come to this class. But it's a little different from all of the other weaving that we think of as being, you know, contemporary American weavers. Uh, well, and I'll, I'll tell you honestly, I have broken a weaver or two um, because it's actually easier for me to teach a spinner who's never woven than it is to teach a weaver who's never spun. And it all has to do with that twist stuff. Spinners understand twist. They understand the direction Z and S and all that good stuff. And if a weaver's never spun yarn, that is all a very foreign concept to them. So one of the things I find most amazing, so you worked on a, um, I think you've worked on a couple of pattern books, right? Correct. Where you talked about how do you know what you're going to get? Do you just try it out, or <laughs> or is is part of <laughs> part of the the chess game? You know, sort of being able to anticipate the moves at this point. Well, I think that's the difference between um, understanding it from having taken a class and having it more than a decade's experience doing it. Is uh, it was one of the most frustrating things for me when I first started is that I could not see and predict what was going to happen when I turned the cards. Um, I could follow a pattern and generally make it work, but I, I couldn't make that leap. Um, with all this time we have, I've been working on a new pattern book on um, the Coptic diamonds or four by four tablet weaving. And the process is I, I have an idea for a pattern I don't know if it's going to work, but, you know, something external has inspired me. And then I pull out my graph paper and I graph it and I go, oh, yeah, that, that looks cool. That might work. Um, and then after I, I graph it on graph paper, then I actually weave it. And um, all of those things will, the, the woven sample as well as the chart will end up in the book. But it also proves that, okay, yeah, that's actually going to work. You know, you mentioned that this is an ancient, primitive kind of weaving. But on the other hand, there are, you know, you talk about Coptic diamonds. I've, I think I've done an Anglo-Saxon class with you. Correct. I've seen something called Sulawesi. Uh-huh. So there's traditions from everywhere. And at the same time, there are people trying new things, like putting fishing weights on the end of their, um, of their warps. So people are going in all kinds of different directions. Well, and um, I, 
I'm not a history buff. Um, that is not the part that draws me to this, as it does many, many tablet weavers. That's their focus is the historical importance of it. But I am fascinated that it comes from all around the world, uh, from from Burma, Myanmar, from the Middle East, from Nordic cultures. Um, I, I didn't think or couldn't find anything in South America. And I just kept thinking, well, maybe it never got there until I traveled to Colombia. And I learned that they call it Egyptian weaving. And if you Google Egyptian weaving in Spanish, tons of resources come up. So yeah, there's plenty of people in Latin countries doing it as well. That's funny. And you, and you know, there's the classic four whole cards, but um, you've worked with six whole cards and, and is that something new or do you think people have tried that before? Oh, oh, it's definitely not new. Um, but it, it adds kind of an exponential level of difficulty as you increase the number of, of holes in a card because you also increase the number of sheds you can use. And, um, and anytime you add numbers of, increase the number of harnesses on the floor loom, you add complexity. And the same is true with the number of holes in cards. I spent, what was it? I guess the end of last year, researching eight hole cards and having fun with that. And I about broke my head, but it was so much fun. <laughs> Because I was trying, I was thinking, I have two sets of four whole cards. I should be able to weave two bands, maybe interlaced, and then have them exchange. And I never quite got there, but I'm not giving up yet. But you did uh, have a, a, a class on double-faced tablet weaving. Yes, where the image is on either side, but yes. Mm -hmm. But that's still four whole cards. And I think the question that you must get all the time, the question everybody asks is, but what do I do with it? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, when I first started, I was a little, as much as I like tablet weaving, I, I still couldn't accept the fact that all, all I'm ever going to be able to weave are narrow pieces of fabric. And um, I've since gotten over that, but the the more I do it, the more, things I find to do with the bands. Um, I'm doing some art pieces now. I've recreated uh, the entire Space Invaders screen out of bands. That was a lot of fun. Um, but there's belts and hat bands and curtain ties and fan poles and shoestrings. And the list is endless when you start looking at how many things have bands and straps on them. So I guess maybe because it's really accessible, but your shoelaces have been a big hit. That's one of the things that first sucked me in. You know, I, I have a whole bunch of class samples, but finally I sat down and wove a pair of shoelaces and I am so proud of those shoelaces. Yay. There's a, some issues at one end, but you know. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's, uh, I did it because I always have shoes on. And when people ask what I do, it was the 
first thing I could point to that I knew I would definitely have with me. So I just point at my feet and I'd say, that's what I do. So, um, but then I developed a class around it and, and uh, yeah, it's a, a lot of fun to weave your own shoelaces and make your shoes pieces of art. And you wove a pair in silk for spinoff. And then we are just wrapping up Little Looms. There are some beautiful um, tablet woven shoelaces that you did in that too. Oh, and, okay. But I think you also said that your shoelaces last longer than your shoes. They do. And uh, longer than typical laces. And um, the twist that gets imparted as you weave lends the the any band, but especially shoelaces, a lot of increased strength. And that's kind of how I think it evolved. It Instead of rope, they would weave a band and use that to tie things and uh, camel girths and harnesses. And so, yes, it's definitely a super strong four-layer, four-thread thick cloth. I think you said once that the um, if you if you wore them in boots that had hooks, that it tended to chew up the laces, but otherwise they just are, yeah, really durable. Yeah, the and most cloth as the edge or selvage wears, um, the minute that happens, it wants to fray. But I've had bands that, you know, a good quarter inch of the band has frayed on the edge and it's still as strong a band as ever. So it, it can take a beating and still be structurally very strong. I need to get out my cards and I have, I have some, I have, three of one color and one of another color that I need to make into a belt and they're set aside for some Coptic diamonds. And I just haven't done it yet. I like that one because for the most part you count to four and it's yes. for people who get distracted. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> when I first met you, you were actually a, a, a student in a class at SOAR. You know, I, I got to know you as a student and, a, and as was a friend. And when I stepped into a classroom with you, it was really quite, um, a revelation because you had you had sort of transformed into it into a, a teacher. It was like a teacher version of John who had pre- prepared meticulously. Um, you know, had tried out all of these different things. You know, you you give this impression of of know it when someone asks something. It's like, oh, I was hoping you would ask that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I don't get the impression that you were, you know, that if you weren't a teacher, you would you would be entertaining large rooms of people. No, like many of us, I'm, I'm mostly an introvert who uh, has to at moments be extroverted. Yes. And, uh, but I probably a couple years into tablet weaving, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And um, mostly because I saw that the, the majority of people teaching tablet weaving at that time were much, much older than me. And I knew that there would be a a vacuum there to fill. Um, I have always been a good communicator at at work and in meetings when, when I worked my corporate job and I had taken enough classes and seen the difference between what makes a good teacher and what makes a bad teacher, and then tried to emulate those things that make a good teacher. Daryl Lancaster was definitely a role model for me, as well as Sarah Lamb. And they always, 
as you said, you, you're prepared, but you also have to have things that are interesting for the students to look at. And um, you, you have to be entertaining. I think that's what sets people like those two and Franklin Habit apart is that it's, it's, you're learning things, but you're also having an enjoyable time with the person you're learning it from. You are, but there's also uh, an element to it where someone is coming to do something that probably is hard for them. They want it to be fun, but it's going to be hard. And there's a certain vulnerability of, am I going to have a bad time? Am I going to look like an idiot? (laughs) And and you just reassure, you know, you have to reassure those people that, because I was like that when, as a student, I caught on to things very quickly, generally. And when I couldn't, it was overly frustrating. But um, you just reassure them that this is not like regular weaving. This has, you know, there's a warp and a weft in there. The similarity stops and let them understand that, that no, as, as simple as I may make it look because I've been doing it forever, this is not necessarily easy for everyone because people's brains work differently. And um, my job is to find the, the right way to tell that person um, how it works as opposed to maybe you. And because I know how your brain works some, so I'm going to tell you it works this way. And it's the same thing. It's just different words, hopefully that reassure and, and, um, break through some of the mystique around it. So you have different classes of things you work on. There's, there's things that you're doing yourself for your own interest exploration art, and then things that you're looking to convey to other people, either through books or videos or live in-person classes. And so there's this whole, you know, when you said you wanted to, you want to do this for a living, you know, in some ways it's air quotes, narrow, (laughs) Uh, but in some ways, <laughs> you 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 look at the whole scope of it. Yeah, and early on, um, and we're talking like 2005. Uh, I I will never forget this. We, I joined the Weavers Guild. Um, I was already weaving. I didn't know there were things like Weavers Guild, but I was already tablet weaving and joined the Weavers Guild. I saw that they had a sale. I thought, oh, well, I'll make things to sell. Uh, So I made dog collars and leashes. And um, I think I even had just some bands that I was trying to sell as you can finish them however you want. And um, I think I made two sales and they were two friends. And I'm pretty sure that they were just pity purchases that those two people did. And I realized really early that um, there was no career in producing bands to sell because the time involved it takes. People ask me, well, if I want to buy a pair of shoelaces, how much is that going to cost? And I tell them $500 because in the time of hourly, you know, and you're getting a -a one-of-a-kind handmade thing, that's what it's worth. And they about fall out of their chair. <laughs> but um, so I knew that wasn't going to be the path to, to making this a, a lifestyle or a career instead of a hobby. 
And I, I will be honest with you. I love teaching. I really enjoy that aspect of it. I love to weave and um, my fingers itch if I'm not turning cards for a while, but I, I really enjoy the teaching as well. And um, going to events like that and teaching class and taking classes, you know, I think particularly this year, we are kind of acutely feeling um, the void that that leaves. The first instance of Red Alder Fiber Retreat was, I think, for a lot of us, the last fiber thing we did in 2020. I know. And um, it it was a little scary. Uh, Becky, my partner, and I both got a little flu bug near the end of that. And we both came back going, was, was that coronavirus? And um, I really, really wanted to this February to be the first conference that went back live. And unfortunately um, it doesn't look like that's going to be able to happen. So you mean yes. February, February, 2021, February, 2021. Correct. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of thinking about that because you and I both were in a similar position this year of seeing a, an event that, that has a tradition of bringing people together and deciding to step into um, a void that was left. So for us, we decided in our first, just past our first year as Long Thread Media to to do a new instance of SOAR, the spinoff Autumn Retreat, mm-hmm. which had a, has a 30-something year history and people were very excited about the prospect. And, you know, when, when I say the first instance of Red Alder, Alder Fiber Arts, that's not the first fiber arts conference that took place in that venue at that time of year. No. And um, Suzanne Peterson, who's an, an amazing woman, ran Madrona Fiber Arts Winter Retreat in Tacoma, Washington for 19 years. And um, 2019 was her last year. And everyone was was really sad. And it was an event that I attended a couple times and then started teaching for, I think, five years. And I loved it. I loved that event. It uh, was a mixed fiber arts event that included um, mostly knitting, but there was a a strong amount of spinning and weaving as well, and um, some felting and dyeing. And I had never seen an event that well integrated and um, it drew people from all around uh, all around the country and so when it when I found out it was going to be its last year I approached her and said you know would you mind and she's like well I'm you know I'm done you can call it whatever you want and go for it so Becky and I did and um, I think our first year went really well and I'm just really sad that it's going to be two years before we see it again, because I I will have forgotten everything I learned in that first year about hosting an event. (laughs) I doubt it. No, you're right. Um, Yeah. And I remember uh, when you first let it be known that you were going to have, you know, Red Alder, um, and people were very excited and you were kind of nervous. 
Yes. And I was like, I said, why? You know, it's it's obviously going to be a slam dunk. <laughs> but she pointed out that, that <laughs> it's one thing to say it's going to be a slam dunk, and another thing to sign the contract with a hotel and and have a you know have a party and hope people are going to come. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and Becky and I, for probably a week before the event, um, both found that we slept very little and. We slept better when we got there and everything was choking along. But that week beforehand, just um, so many, you know, I's to dot and T's to cross. And then, of course, that feeling of, okay, I I know it's not going to be as big as Madrona was, but I hope we had more than five people because that would be really nice. (laughs) (laughs) And we had we had uh, um, right at 500 people, which I think was uh, a very manageable, but, but very worthwhile amount. This is the first event of this scope that you've had before, but you and Becky yes. have worked on other events before. Correct. We we have a little craft camp that um, we run in rural Missouri, but we're talking 50 people, not 500 people. Yeah. So, and what surprised you about about putting together Red Alder for the first year? I think the thing that surprised me the most was, and we had the same thing happen at craft camp on a smaller basis, but um, that it, it, it wasn't as hard as I thought it would be once it was happening. And, you know, I, I credit that to Becky and I, we, we've been to, less successful conferences where um, at the craft camp, the previous director was also teaching. She would bring her family and it looked like it was constantly a train ready to fall over the edge of a cliff. And everyone felt that at that event. And the first year we took it over, um, people were now we were two people. I didn't teach and um, we didn't bring small children that might be underfoot. and um, But everyone remarked at how relaxed the event felt. And um, so I think if you, if you do the work up front, you get all those ducks in a row, um, then, you know, barring natural disasters, um, it, it will run itself, you know, and... We had a, a, at the first Red Alder, we had one or two small little brush fires that were quickly put out. And beyond that, it was fine. And, you know, Suzanne used to run such a a great tight show as well that I felt it really important that I live up to that expectation. You know, classes are going to start on time. They're going to be where you expect. All the signage is going to be really good. And, um, and uh, people came up to us afterwards and said, yes, this this felt easy and it felt, you know, if, if the uh, people who are attending um, don't notice the event happening, then you've run a good event. <laughs> it's funny that you say that. I, um, I do think that there's a pretty big Dunning-Kruger effect in, in um, I think it's Dunning-Kruger effect, where, you know, when you first look at it, Oh, it looks easy. You just have a part, you know, you just have classes and everybody comes. And then you look into it a little bit and you think, uh, what, what's a BEO? 
um, yes. what's the, um, what, what kind of insurance do I need? You know, what's the, what's the plus plus, um, you know, how many, what, what are the sponsorship levels and, and what do the teachers need? Um, and then once you sort of sort those out, if you've, if you've done a, a proper job of really thinking all those through in advance, um, then it, then it can go off like you intended. I think in both of these cases, we are going to benefit from ha- there having been, there's the expectations that we have to live up to, but on the other hand, there's also sort of a framework and yes. Um, yeah. And I would not have taken on starting a new mm-hmm. fiber show from scratch um, at all. I still enjoy teaching and weaving much better than I uh, enjoy being an event planner. But um, I, I feel almost qualified because I've been going to so many events <laughs> that I can recognize what, what a good event looks like. And, and I loved SOAR. I, I just, I would not miss it. And um, I'm one of those that's very excited to see that come back. And so thank you. We are really excited too. Um, one of the challenges that we face that you might have as well is um, what's going to be the same and what's going to be different. Yes. Um, and, you know, preparing people for the fact that we won't be able to do everything the way it was in the past. Resetting expectations, not which is not to say it's setting a, a, a low bar, but no. but saying, you know, I know this is what you're accustomed to and we're going to go forward and do it this way. Well, and and you could say, you know, which past? It, mm. Sor and Madrona had been around so long. They they both evolved a lot. So our goal was to make sure that people who had come before um, felt the same excitement to come and uh, knew more or less what to expect. We rearranged the evening activities a little bit, got rid of some created some new ones, but we still had evening activities as uh, Madrona did. But you also want to make sure that people who had never come to the event um, enjoyed it and, and knew what to expect before coming in as well. So with SOAR, uh, as long as I went, I, I know it changed a lot. So you could almost pick anywhere in that timeline and say, you know, if we're going to carry over some things, you have a lot of different space you could choose from for that. And one of the folks who was the first to sign up, among the first to sign up, um, went to some of the first sores, and I think she camped out in her car. And I don't think she's, you know, that might be part of the history, but I don't think we're going to do that again. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on now? Well, as we talked about earlier, I'm, I'm working on uh, my Coptic Diamonds pattern book. It's Again, going to be a small pamphlet with uh, maybe 15 different original patterns plus instructions on how to to do that technique. And uh, um, since we can't do training, teaching in person yet, and it doesn't look like we'll be able to for the foreseeable future, uh, I really don't. I'm not sure how I feel about online classes yet, but um, I definitely want to to make some videos, some very short and 
and specific topic videos that I can um, put on my website. And uh, I've had a lot of requests for online teaching. And I just, I can't imagine people holding up their their cards to the small camera on their laptop <laughs> going, why is it not working? And um, so, you, so. Can, you can work on tablet weaving with your tablet, with your video on your tablet is I'm sure I'm not the first to make that joke, but <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So yeah. uh, those, that's what I've got in the, in the wings right now. That's great. It's very exciting. Yeah. Well, um, until we meet again, John, I will, uh, think of you as I warp up my loom and possibly finally weave the belt that I've had in mind for a while. Um, and thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. And it's, it's great seeing you and talking with you. Thank you for listening to the long thread podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate the show and leave us a comment on Apple podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again.